And, you know, he said, if you call me one more time, I'm not going to call you back. Like, cause I kept calling him. Right. And then one day, you know, we had a conversation and he really tried to discourage me. He was like, look, we only have ball boys, you know, that are 15, 16. You have to have good grades. You got to be here at four o'clock before anyone gets here. You leave after midnight, after everybody leaves, you know, it's grunge work, you're mopping sweat, you're, you know, folding towels, you're hanging uniforms. Oh, and by the way, this job doesn't pay. You know, at the end of the game, you may get some tips depending on how good a job the whole crew does collectively. Um, but, you know, even in trying to discourage me, I was like, I don't care. I just, right. <laughs> I want to I be there, I want to learn. Hey guys, what's good? Welcome to the Cosign Life. If you're watching this video, that means you co-sign us and we co-sign you. So here are a couple of ways to support us at Cosign Magazine. Number one, View the description below, click the link, and purchase an issue of Cosign Magazine. It's like this, this one right here, physical. You can purchase this. Number two, you can also support us by purchasing Cosign merch. Hit the link below, and it'll take you to all our past merch items, and we'd love to have your support and see you wear Cosign Magazine. Thank you for joining me, KG Graham, on the Cosign Conversations, where we interview successful entrepreneurs, creators, and executives to kind of share their blueprint of how they made it. And uh, I'm excited to have a very special guest from Atlanta, one of my favorite second places to visit outside of New York, where I was born. Sorry, but I was born in New York, so I got to go there first. <laughs> but Atlanta next, we have the CMO of the Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Marina. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, um, especially, you know, we just got out of Black History Month. Now we're in Women's History Month. It was just a, a powerful connection to have, to have met you on Instagram and to be able to share your story with our audience and readers, which is 64% of our community um, are women. So it's amazing that, you know, you'll be able to share your story and motivate and inspire them. So I want to thank you for your time uh, over everything. So I appreciate Absolutely. Definitely. So, um, so let's get to the beginning. So with I like to start off with icebreaker. It's kind of cliche, but for those who don't know, who would you say is Melissa M. Proctor? Those who don't know Melissa M. Proctor, I'm a mom. For sure. First and foremost, originally from Miami, Florida. Um, an artist who loves soca music and all things Caribbean <laughs> um, and happened to, you know, have an amazing opportunity in life to be a fall girl for the Miami Heat at 15 and Sure. It's taken a lot of different twists and turns on this journey to ultimately be CMO for the Hawks. Definitely, man. That's an, that's an amazing story. And I want to say I read it somewhere that um, initially your goal was to be the first M uh, woman NBA coach, right? Yep. First female coach in the NBA. That was my goal. Got you. So tell me what switched um, from being a coach to, to being a CMO. Like, where did you transition it? You know, what's crazy is I, I never played basketball. People always assume that I played in like middle school right. or high school or even college. I went to Wake Forest and I was at Wake on an art scholarship and I I'd never played the game. But when I started at the heat as a ball girl, you know, it's the first time I ever really learned. And the players were teaching me how to pass. The assistant coaches are teaching me how to, you know, run certain drills for the players pregame. And so I loved the game of basketball and I really got to understand a lot of it through that experience. Right. And then when I went to college at Wake Forest, I started volunteering um, in the summertime. I'd come back from college to Miami and okay. volunteer with the 
eat, whether, you know, putting together scouting reports and, you know, whatever I could do around basketball operations. I remember talking to one of the assistant coaches, you know, about my desire to, to want to coach. And he was just like, have you, have you ever played the game? And I'm like, well, nah, like, well, how are you gonna coach if you never played the game? And I was like, I mean, you got a point, but you know, and I think it was just more interesting to me as I really began to understand more about the business of basketball. I had applied for an, uh, an internship at the NBA headquarters and like a management training program. And they turned me down and they told me I was too creative and that the NBA was a business. And thankfully they turned me down because ultimately it led me to Atlanta to right. come and work at Turner Broadcasting then for TNT and marketing. And I realized that I am a creative person by nature. And so that idea of being creative and having some strategy and still being able to work on the NBA because it was NBA on TNT at the time. Right. Um, it was kind of a different way to get there and still be around basketball or sports for a short time, but not necessarily as a coach. And I was okay as I learned more about kind of the business aspects of just entertainment and sports in general. I really gravitated more to that anyway. So hard to coach if you never played. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Do you think that point that you said where they said the NBA is, um, you're too creative and the NBA is more of a business. Do you think that is still relevant? Because I see the NBA doing so many more creative stuff right now. Oh, partnering no, no, with artists. No. Uh, well, yeah. No, they've evolved a ton. I mean, this was maybe early 2000s, you know, and, and David Stern was a lawyer, Adam Silver was a lawyer. And so a lot of what the league is built on is licensing and rights. And, you know, that's how they make a lot of their money. And so I understood, I didn't understand at the time what they meant, but having understand more of the business side of the league, now they've definitely injected a ton of creativity. And, you know, with the teams that they build, agencies they work with, obviously a lot of players and social media and, you know, other brands that are associated Right. It's changed a lot since then, but you know they were it, it was a different time. Right, yeah. Now they did they, they definitely did change with the times. So let's go with the beginning. So how do you even become a ball girl fifteen? What's that process like for maybe some of our young people watching right now? That's like, man, how do I get that first entry point into the NBA? What was that process like? You know, it's crazy. Is uh, my parents, my mom was from Belize and my dad was from Jamaica, and so uh, they got divorced when I was like in middle school. And I remember talking to my mom when I was fifteen, and I was like, I want to get a job. You know, my dad worked at a bank. My mom was a nurse and, you know, she was like, okay, what do you want to do? And I was like, oh, my friends were working at, you know, the mall, the movie theater, and just working at Publix. Like it didn't matter. I just wanted a job. And she was like, well, Mel, you can get a job as long as it is and whatever you want to be for the rest of your life. And at 15, I was like, I knew I didn't want to be an artist. I'd always painted and I loved visual arts, but I did that anyway. Right. And so I was like, well, I want to, you know, be a coach in the NBA. And she said, go get a job in the NBA. Okay. And so that was kind of her laying down the gauntlet. So for me, I didn't have any other option. So if I wanted to get a job, it was the NBA or no job, which <laughs> now as a mom, I'm so glad she did that. Right. Cause I would have never thought to do something like that for my kid. Right. But back then this was before email and, and all of that. So I was writing letters, like literally pen on paper, writing letters to the heat, mailing it to their offices. I would draw on the envelopes to try to, you know, make people want to pay attention and open it. And I would make phone calls, literally calling the switchboard. Then I would get an operator and they would send me to a community relations person. And they said they didn't have jobs. They tried equipment manager. So I tried equipment manager and I kept calling and leaving messages. And, you know, finally I wrote letters to the equipment manager, a guy named Jay Sable, the heat. And, you know, he said, if you call me one more time, I'm not going to call you back. Like, cause I kept calling him. And then one day, you know, we had a conversation and he really tried to discourage me. He was like, look, 
we only have ball boys, you know, that are 15, 16. You have to have good grades. You got to be here at four o'clock before anyone gets here. You leave after midnight, after everybody leaves, you know, it's grunge work, you're mopping sweat, you're, you know, folding towels, you're hanging uniforms. Oh, and by the way, this job doesn't pay. You know, at the end of the game, you may get some tips depending on how good a job the whole crew does collectively. Um, but, you know, even in trying to discourage me, I was like, I don't care. I just, right. I want to I be there. I want to learn. Right. And I didn't really even know what that meant. I had never been to the then Miami arena. I'd never even been there for a professional sporting event before. And so it was all new. And finally, one day he called me and said, you know, you, you got a lot of heart, you know, come in for a preseason game. And he gave me a little outfit. And it was the first <laughs> time it was like I saw TV, you know, lit up in front of me in real right. life. And it was amazing. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to rebound. I didn't know how to pass. I didn't know how to, you had to make up mops with towels, you know, at the time. Right. It was a very different experience, but I learned and I loved it. But it was really just that persistence that got the job. Instantly fell in love with it. Now I feel you. That's awesome. That's awesome. You, you spoke on your on your mom, kind of like pushing you into that position. Well, I think that is amazing. So um, with you having Caribbean parents, uh, my parents are from Panama, Central America. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of strict, but they always supported me. They're like, whatever you do, yeah. make sure that you're the best at it. So do you feel like growing up, you had like the, the strength and support of, of your family, your parents going into this industry? Absolutely. I mean, I was an, I'm an only child uh, by my mom and my dad. And so, you know, I have an older brother um, that my father had who was back in Jamaica. But growing up, like we, I didn't see him. We weren't very close. Right. And so being, you know, in Miami, my mom would always say the same thing. As long as you do your best, you can't do anymore. Like that was always her thing. It was interesting because my parents were very different. And my father, Jamaican, super strict. He did not like the idea of me. Right working for a basketball team, being around these big grown men, you know, his young daughter. And I remember him always telling me, like, I want you to be a physical therapist because you'd always have a job. Mm. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm an artist. Like, it didn't even make sense to me. But I had his support, but it was always in a very different way. And now that he sees me, he's like, I'm so proud of you. Like, (laughs) I would have never done any of this, you know? Um, But I I think my mom was always the one who was like, Mel, that's what you want to do. We'll make it work. You know, whatever we have to do, she'll make the sacrifices in order for me to get the opportunities. And whether it was going to a school way outside of where my neighborhood was, she would drive an hour to get me to elementary school, you know, getting me into magnet programs. Just, you know, they had this uh, program called the Mi'kmaq Achiever Society when I was young, and it was for academically talented, you know, people of kids of color. And so she would drive me all around Miami to these different programs and drama class, gymnastics, synchronized swimming I did for a while, tennis, back, you name it. She was like, I want you to try it. And I'm so grateful for that opportunity now because it definitely kind of opened up my eyes to what the world had to offer. No, that's amazing. Um, I have a 13-year-old daughter. I tell her the same thing. Like, yo, try everything because you never really know what you like until you at least try. Absolutely. The downside of that with her is she likes everything. So now now I'm busy. I'm all over the place. But, you know, it's interesting to watch kids learn themselves and grow and, and then you just nurture what they're into. So that's awesome. Um, what role do you think that, you know, your, your Caribbean upbringing played in your story and becoming resilient and, and successful? Um, I know with us, like we was always instilled hard work, like laziness wasn't uh, an option. You had to up doing something, working on something. So what do you believe your Caribbean roles played in your success story? I mean, I think it mean, meant so much. In high school, I had three jobs. And back in the living color days, my friends would be like, oh, you Jamaican, you got three jobs. Right, right. Like, yes, I am. Even at 15, 16, I was working 
for the heat, you know, as a ball kid, I was volunteering with the University of Miami women's basketball teams. I wanted to learn more about the game of basketball. I was a graphic designer for the Miami Herald newspaper. I did an internship one summer and it kind of led me into a part-time graphic designer job. And so I was able to get like real life experience of what it meant to be a graphic designer on a team. So even in high school, I was doing a lot of those things and it was a hundred percent, you know, my upbringing every summer as a child, I was either in Belize or in Jamaica, but it was for me as a young, young kid, I hated it. You know, I want to go home. I want my AC. I want my game boy, my video game. But you know, as I got older, I realized like I would be around friends or family in Belize and we're driving down the street and they're like, Ooh, look at that Ford F-150. That's my dream car. And I'd be like, man, I want a Lamborghini, Ferrari, you know, it's just different worlds, but the difference in the way of life I loved and being able to see those differences and understand that holistically life is so much more about like living a good life. And it could be simple and you could wash your clothes and hang them on the line and eat some good food and, you know, chill by a beach. And that is joy. And so I've always kind of lived in these two worlds of being a part of this U.S. American rap race of culture where you're trying to climb to the top of what I don't know, you know, versus just living off the land and being in a very different world. And I, I think now, especially this stage, I'm always like life is more important than work, no matter where I am, no matter what I do, you know having support, love of friends and family is crucial and critical because at the end of the day, you can't take any of it with you. And, you know, my mom, she passed away when I was in my thirties. And I remember, you know, she died. She would, when I was a kid, she's like, when I die, cremate me. So I'll just cremate me and scatter my ashes in some, in the ocean. And so I remember doing that. Like literally she died. I had her ashes in a cardboard box, jumped on the plane, went to Miami. And then I found like this area of, of water and I like literally opened up the box and like scattered her ashes in the ocean and it to this day like it's so ingrained in my mind because it's everything that she taught me as a child mm-hmm. but that whole idea of like dust to dust it was like the ashes danced around and disappeared and I'm like this big woman that taught me so much mm-hmm. isn't physically here anymore but that all of that energy is 100% what I bring to my work and to my life every day because you know we're not here forever. No, nah, you're right. You're right. So how do you, and that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that with us. How do you, to this day, still kind of um, feed your creative, your creative soul? Because I know, you know, uh, being a CMO is a lot of creativity, but it's a lot of business as well. So how do you kind of still feed your, feed your creative spirit and your needs? Because I know creativity is, it can over, it can overcome you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it, it depends. Like I look at how to approach things in a different way. I have an amazing team of people that I, that I work with on a daily basis. And they're all subject matter experts in their respective fields. And so a lot of it is just partnership and listening and kind of listening to our audience and looking at fans. And I'm on fan sites as well. I'm like, what y'all talking about? You know, what's, what's popping here? Clubhouse, Clubhouse is all the rage, you know, getting in there early, understanding what it is, pushing my team to try to look at how we can innovate and be in that space first in a new and different way. And so, you know, I'm always personally just curious about what's next. I love music. And so that's, you know, a big thing for me looking at either music industry, what's happening in the world of fashion, what's happening in entertainment, being in Atlanta as a cultural creative hub is awesome because there's so much cool stuff happening here and people doing interesting things. But to me, I don't look at sports. (laughs) I think it's the (laughs) biggest learning. It's kind of like, I know the industry I'm in. There's a lot of good things happening in sports for sure. I mean, team-wise, 
but just trying to go as broad as possible. And I think personally, you know, I mentioned, you know, how much I love all things like Soka, Carnival. I will go to a carnival pre-pandemic anywhere in the world and that feeds my creative spirit personally, you know, being able to go and whether it's the costumes or the energy or, you know, the fets and how things have changed and evolved so much over time. Like that's my happy place. Not for sure. That's amazing. Um, my mom, she teaches uh, typical, which is like the uh, uh, authentic Panamanian dancing. So I get to see her friends and family, you know, dress up in the in traditional costumes and dance. So it always gives me a sense of home seeing that. So like, I'm, I'm big on that as well. Um, so you have your book from Ball Girl to CMO. That's your book and it sounded like your life story as well, right? What made you even decide to, to pen and write a book? Like, I know a lot of people think about it, but nobody has that. A lot of people don't have that courage to actually just sit down and make it happen. So what was the inspiration behind it? And it's your life story, so kind of tell us about it. Well, you know, it was it was interesting because I remember right before I started working for the Hawks, you know, here in Atlanta, I would do a lot of talks at Turner because I started at Turner Broadcasting as an intern mm-hmm. and I was there about 11 years. I left for a year, went to graduate school in London and focused on brand strategy and worked at Turner's UK office there, then came back and had a lot of different jobs um, in the company. And ultimately, I was the vice president of marketing and content for a digital health and wellness startup. But I would always get asked to speak based on my journey, like coming in as an intern. How did you navigate a career? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just doing the best I can, taking on jobs nobody else wanted. And ultimately, you know, being in that position, every time I would share my story, people would be like, oh, man, you should write a book. You should write a book. So when I started with the Hawks, it kind of came full circle going back to sports again out of being in entertainment. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. But, uh, you know, I wasn't really about it. And then one day I remember I, I went to speak and someone said, you should do it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to write a blog. Cause yeah. I think that way I had my daughter at that point, And I said, if anything ever happens to me, I want her to be able to know my story from me because yeah. after my mom passed away, there were so many questions I had for her. I didn't have my daughter then. And I'm like, how did she do this? What was she like, you know, at this stage in her life? So I'd have to talk to her friends to try to piece something together, but none of it was directly from my mom. Right. And so that was a big driver in me writing my book. I'm like, let me just put it down. So I said, I'm going to write a blog. It'll be on the internet. She can search it one day. Hopefully it'll <laughs> still exist. Right. And I started in my mind, I said, I was going to write a blog entry every month. And I think after the first year I had like three, maybe four. <laughs> um, and so I was like, well, you know, I'll kind of get there another year past. And then I had met a professional contact having a conversation. And he was like, Hey, you know, a, a woman I know has a publishing company. You should, you know, you should write a book. And I'm like, all right introduce me to her like because I think if I had the help or assistance in going through the process I probably would have never done it if I didn't get the help so had that conversation didn't talk to the guy for like another year so then one day he was like oh yeah I was supposed to make that intro for you let's do lunch and so we met for lunch him myself and swimming Rita Bryant from Mind Matters Publishing okay amazing woman you know black owned company here in Atlanta and I was like I, I told her my story a little bit she's like I'd love to work with you and so we sat down and I said, all right, we're going to write this book. This was maybe a couple of years ago. So let's do it. And she was like, well, you can get it done in six months. How much of it are you willing to write? And I'm like, I'm going to write a chapter. She's like, give me a chapter every two weeks. I'm like, cool. A year later, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I got like you know, four or five chapters together. And so honestly, it was the pandemic that really helped. Like okay. I had all the desire in the world, but not the time. And so when I had a little bit of time, she was like, Melissa, you're like, what do you need? So 
was able to work with her team and they set up interviews and really helped me to get the content out there and then how to structure it, how to, you know, put together the chapters, looking at, you know, pricing strategies, things I would have never even thought about designing. What's the book cover? What's the synopsis in the back? So a lot of that really happened at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was like, all right, let me put forth effort. And at that point it had been going on for so long. I never thought it would end. (laughs) So finally (laughs) um, we got to the stage and she was like, Hey, well, you know, we did your final edit. You're done. And I was like, done? What do you mean done? (laughs) She was like, you know, I I know that you're a CMO, but have you put any thought into marketing the book? I was so happy to have the book done. I didn't even think about marketing. Like it was nowhere on my radar. I wasn't out there trying to sell books. I wrote the book for my daughter, literally. And so then when it was completed, like I got uh, some help, was able to get it out. I mean, it it all happened while we're on lockdown. So there was no big party, no nothing. But it's been amazing because- my goal was complete as soon as it was done. This was done. But every time I get to speak with somebody or share with someone, it's like, oh my God, I read your book. I got this from it. Thank you. It just, it just brings me so much joy that, you know, being able to share my journey and the challenges that I faced and how I confronted them and lessons learned along the way, if it can benefit other people, that's a blessing. And wow. so now I'm just grateful for it. That's amazing. <clears throat> so would you say the process of somebody writing a book can it be seamless or it's like you would definitely say work with the publisher on that process? You know, I think it's different for everyone. Like I never set out to be an author, you know, right. for someone who was like, I'm going to write a book. That's my life's journey. I feel like they would have been way more dedicated <laughs> and probably getting it done, you know, much faster for myself. I'm a, I'm an executive. I'm working. I, I co-parent my daughter, you know, for the last year, I've been a first grade teacher at home at the same time. And so <laughs> trying to juggle all of that, while having multiple games and events, you know, from the hawk side of my job, that was a lot, you know, so it, because I wasn't looking at the book as my livelihood, I think I had different energy around it. People like, you're going to write a sequel. And I was like, oh, we lucky we got one done, you know, right. but ultimately it depends if my life and my journey takes me to a point where I have more lessons and I can share, I absolutely would be willing to. But for me, I'll say partnering with a publisher was super beneficial just in helping me go through the process especially the first time for sure for sure definitely and speaking of early you said you talked about marketing the book i would say what are the differences marketing such as like personal brands like marketing yourself and then working in you know corporate america creating market campaigns that way because i want to say i feel like there is two different strategies two different complete strategies so what, what advice would you give or how do you how do you navigate both like marketing your personal brand as, you know, an author, uh, creative executive. And then when it comes to, you know, Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena. You know, it's interesting because I'm a pretty behind the scenes kind of chick. Like I don't necessarily like being in front of the camera or doing those things. So for me, I've seen so many marketers that are well-known and have huge social followings and doing TV shows. And I'm like, that's not my vibe personally. And, but I think if someone does want to build themselves up as a brand, that's hundred percent important in terms of, you know, getting the eyeballs and getting in front of people so that you can grow your brand. For me, it's all about authenticity. I'm like what I do every day, who I am, I don't change. I don't deviate. Like that's just what it is. Right. And so I think my personal brand is a lot of what I bring to my professional brand with the Atlanta Hawks, because we true to Atlanta as a brand mantra was all about truth and transparency. And like, this is who we are. This is, we're not trying to be anything else. You know, we're, we are from Atlanta, so how do we bring those Atlanta influences and try to make it as authentic a brand as we can for our city? Knowing that the NBA and our team is a global brand, but we can only be famous for basketball in the city of Atlanta because that's where we are. 
Right. And so I do think that there are times where those things align. For me personally, it was actually very difficult. And even when I wrote my book, I wanted to just kind of put it out there and not really talk about it because I was focused on my corporate job and the Hawks brand. Right. And it's a different thing, but I've also, I, through this process, really learned how to navigate between the two and knowing it's okay. Sometimes they come together. Most times they're not. I might do an interview where I'm talking about our MLK City Edition uniform or some of the work that we've done for the Hawks as a, a civic asset in the community, being the first team to open up our arena for early voting, you know, during the elections. That's one thing. If I'm talking to you about my, my book, it's a different thing. But I am still the person that works and is responsible for all of that. So it's interesting. From a marketing perspective, and it's different for everyone, I don't, I'm not looking at my personal brand as this is my bread and butter. Right. You know, I mean, obviously it is because it's connected to me, but you know, I have, so for the Hawks, we have much bigger marketing budgets than right. I always <laughs> spend on marketing myself, sure. <laughs> you know, okay. and that's a different thing, but there's some people who spend a ton of money marketing themselves because that's their job in a okay. different way. So I think it really just depends on what you have and what you're trying to bring to the table. Um, but ultimately it's been a very interesting path to navigate between the two. No, for sure. That's, that's amazing. And y'all recently had held, um, NBA All-Star Weekend in Atlanta. I know that must've been crazy for you. <laughs> crazy for you. So what, um, what type of things did your, your team and your creative team come up with for the city of Atlanta and, uh, and the Hawks and NBA to implement during the All-Star Weekend? Because I know you have your day-to-day -day routine marketing perspective, marketing campaigns, but now this is something completely different. It's a one-off. So what kind of strategies do you have for uh, NBA All-Star Weekend for Atlanta? Well, you know, it's interesting because for All-Star, it was normally all-star games you have about you know three or four years to help build and plan for we probably had like a month and so we were the host so honestly all of that work is done by the nba okay. so it's not a hawks initiative by any means we partner with our league partners to help you know kind of bring their vision to life the beauty of it is we had an hbcu night game you know right before our all-star came and it was on our schedule we knew we were doing it from the time they announced the schedule for the season. And so it dovetailed really nicely into what they were obviously already planning for All-Star. But a lot of it for me was just really being able to partner with our league partners. And get, you know, they'll call and say, hey, what should we do? What are your ideas? What have you done around HBCU night? We had an amazing panel bringing you know, local entrepreneurs together to talk about you know, the pandemic and how they were able to navigate. And so being able to share that information with the league or whether it's creative resources that we've had, you know, relationships that we've built, with partners like Gooder doing pop-up grocery stores around the city, we were able to partner with the NBA and connect them uh, with Gooder so that they were able to do that all around the city to help support the community with All-Star. And so I think, you know, for us, it was tremendous in the, the ability to partner, but I, there were members of my team who were in our building for over 80 hours last week, just working with their production team to get everything ready. It's a huge set, like it is a production. Um, and from the retail side, partnering with our retail team and the league retail and other vendors and partners to get all-star merchandise in our building and on our website to sell. I mean, it's, it's a process. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, everyone was thrilled with how it all came together. And I'm so proud, you know, of my team for everything that they were able to learn and do through that. But right. to have, you know, Ryan Cameron, who's our PA announcer as PA for the all-star game, a big Tigger as a DJ or, right. you know, Shamia, who is a tremendous host for our team, who's also on Real Housewives of Atlanta. She was on this stage killing it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> team. Just so, so proud. 
you know, I love to see it. And you just talked about it. it was a great opportunity for your team to learn. I feel like a lot of this conversation and your story, you learned a lot from being at, at Turner, right? So I would like to ask, you know, over that period of time that you were there from the internship to working in different departments, what did you learn throughout those 11 years, right? What yeah. did you learn through those 11 years that, um, that you still implement today as a CMO? Like what did all those 11 years at Turner teach you to be able to do the CMO today? Man, so much. One, the power of just relationship building mm. and how crucial it is. And for me, like, I'm not, I'm not a networker. Right. You know, I'm not the one that's out there handing out business cards to everybody. But I might meet one person and that'd be my bestie for life. And I'm <laughs> that's kind of my energy. And at Turner, I learned so much. I mean, I was straight out of college. So I learned how to set a proper email and when to use a CC and how not to be CC people. And, right. you know, office etiquette, going into someone's office and knocking before you go in, even if it's a cubicle, asking if they have time to speak or, you know, they don't, you don't learn that stuff anywhere. Right. You know, truly. And I remember this, this woman who worked in video production at TNT, she would always teach me. She's like, honey, you know, you can catch more flies with sugar than vinegar. So like how to treat people, even if they're difficult people to deal with a lot of that kind of corporate navigation, I learned through my time at Turner, but then also kind of, I call it, uh, my boss and I call it playing in the gray. There were a lot of times where there were opportunities that came about with departments that didn't exist before. And I would always be the one to raise my hand and be like, hey, I'll help. You know, what do I need? It's a new task force. And I realized that became a strength of mine by being able to, you know, have a blank sheet of paper and create what the future could look like. Where I, I didn't, and I didn't realize, but a lot of people need black and white. Like, I need you to tell me exactly what you need me to do and I will kill it. Right. And so the idea that so there were probably about three or four jobs I had during that time at Turner that didn't exist before I got there. And so being able to build something from nothing, almost like as an entrepreneur, was a lot of what I gained from my time at Turner. And being such a creative company, they were open to those things, okay. which was cool. And then, you know, I think the, the last thing I'll say uh, was just, I, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I didn't know when I started at Turner. I don't know now. But being able to be in a company like that, that's national, but also international, right. being able to have different experiences. So whether it's working in their UK office and corporate social responsibility, helping to rebrand Court TV to True TV, working on Adult Swim and Cartoon Network, being open to the idea of the journey and wherever it leads me, like, it's going to be all right. And yes. I learned that through that experience. As I started out like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to work? What is this going to be? And by the end, I'm like, yo, whatever happens, happens. Happens. Like, I know God got my back. I'm going to do the best I can. Always come bring the energy, you know, let my work speak for itself. And it really took kind of navigating my career during that time to get my confidence to the point where I'm like, you know, I got this. Yeah, that's real. That's, that's amazing. And you spoke, you spoke to the ports of relationships, right? So I want to, I want to hear from you. Who was the first person to, to co-sign you in the, in this, I'm going to say in the sports industry, right? So it's hard getting in the sports industry by itself, but then being a woman in sports, who's like the first person that was like, hey, I support you, I have your back, I'm gonna help, you know, either help or believe in you to help you get to the next level. Who was that person for you? Man, I can't, I can't say there was one person, I'd probably say three people. Okay. One is for sure Jay Sable, and he was the equipment manager for the Heat that initially put me on day one where there were no girls, he never had a ball girl. He was like, I don't even know what I'm gonna do with you, but come on. <laughs> come on, right. You, you got heart, we'll figure it out. And you know, ultimately he was one of the biggest champions for me. Even when I moved to Atlanta, mm -hmm. I called him up and he called the equipment manager for the Hawks to give me a job mopping up sweat for the Hawks when I first moved to Atlanta as an intern. Right. 
And so I'll say that he for sure saw something in me. Um, Another person I would say would be Tim Hardaway. He was a player for the the Heat when I was with the team. He had to kill a crossover. (laughs) Kill a crossover. You tap two step. Yeah. And and Tim, you know, was just such a good person. You know, him and his wife Yolanda. When I was a ball girl for the Heat in high school, they were like, "Hey, come help us with our son's birthday party." Now he's Tim Jr., who's a NBA player. I'm helping carry ice and whatever. And they were like, what can we do? How can we help support you? I had artwork. They would, that's my art behind me. They would buy my art to keep in their home for their personal collection. And I'm like, man, you know, like, but he was finally the first player that saw me and was like, you know, you got something special. We want to help you. And ultimately when I went and moved to Atlanta and I decided to go to grad school in London, I was looking for somebody to help raise, I needed to raise money to go to the UK for school. And him and his wife said, you know, we believe in you and your vision. We want to support you. So here's a check, $20,000, go to school, oh, you know, wow. and then, and pay it forward. Don't even give it back. Just continue to give back and help others. And that meant so much to me. So I think he definitely kind of vouched for me in that way. And the third person I'll say is the Arison family, you oh. know, I mean, uh, Madeline Arison and Mickey Arison, the owners of the Heat as an organization. When I started as a ball girl, uh, their son, Nick Arison, who's now leader of the, the Heat, he was a ball boy too. And they had a daughter, Kelly, who would sit on the sidelines because her brother was a ball boy and there were no girls. So when I started, she became a ball girl with me. Oh, nice. And we did that together. We became friends. So it was almost like being a part of their family. But now like her mom calls me her daughter. And when I was going away to college at Wake Forest, they're like, whatever you need, we're here for you as an organization and as a family. And I'm like, man. And so the fact that they're still kind of owners of that team have done amazing things for Miami you know, and through the businesses they have, but have never forgotten, you know, about me and that connection. It's, it's critical, but it truly is like a family. That's amazing. That's amazing to have that, that support from, you know, people in the industry like that and to kind of help you grow and, and, and to nurture you. What's, what's crazier to me is it's like, I didn't know these people. Right. You know what I'm saying? And that's like, to me, that's like God and a blessing because I'm a kid from Richmond Heights in Miami, right. not really the hood, but kind of sort of the hood. And like having parents who were not American, I had no hookups. I didn't know anyone. Like normally it's somebody, cousin, auntie, uncle, like I knew no one. And so the ability to come from left field to kind of even get a, a foot in the door in the space and then really be able to build over time, like it says so much about the power of relationships and just treating people well. Sure. And from top to bottom, whether it's a janitor to the security guard to the ownership or the player, like treating everybody the same and showing love is critical. And it also goes to like people taking advantage of the opportunity that they receive because you could have got the position at the ball girl, maybe not taking it serious. And then those relationships yeah. wouldn't have been um, as impactful as they are now, but because you took it serious and you were fully committed, people took note of that. They saw that and they wanted to help you grow. So that's, I feel like that's, that's, that's a gem right there. Cause I have friends who have great positions at companies but weren't focused weren't focused, weren't fully committed and lost those opportunities. And now they look back and like, man, I wish I'd have took it seriously. So yeah, yeah that's I, a, one thing I, I always tell people and I wrote about it in my book, it's called just being an asset to people, not a liability. For sure. And the idea of kind of looking at everybody's time is valuable. If I get 30 minutes with you, then we have a one-on-one meeting and I'm just like, I want this job. Tell me what you did. I want this, I want that. And you walk away and I'm like, okay, I gave 30 minutes, but you got, you've done nothing for me. You know, where the questions that I would ask people are like, you know, what are your challenges? What's keeping you up at night? What are your points of pain? Like, what do you need? And then after I hear that, really trying to find a way to solve it. And it could be as simple as making an introduction to someone. It could be sending an article or 
you know, a book that I may have read that could potentially help, even if it doesn't help the fact that you took effort after having the conversation to be of value, right. that's huge. And people really don't think about it in that way because it's always about what they can get from that moment. Nah, for sure. That's amazing. I don't have a couple of questions. I guess I don't want to take too much of your time, but I have a couple of questions. Um, so when people look into sports, right, a lot of times in our culture is like, okay, I have to be in the NBA, the NFL, right? They, they look at it strictly as a player aspect. And there's so many positions outside of actually playing that people can enter and still follow the dreams of being in the NBA, NFL, et cetera. So for people like that, what are some like entry level positions um, like let's say in college or post-college that people should look for, uh, people should apply for, or position they don't even, don't even know exists, but are great entry-level positions just to get them into the industry. And that, it's, that's such a great point. And when I speak, especially to like high school students, I'm like, any job that you can think about, we probably have it within our organization. All right. so when you look at the complexity of the business, especially at the team level, we have one of the biggest security forces everywhere. We're probably the largest restaurant in Atlanta with the number of people that we serve when we're traditionally having a number of events in our building at any given day. So if it's, you know, working at food service, if it's, you know, finance, if it's HR, if it's IT, if it's HVAC, if it's a painter, all of that, all of those things are a part of our organization. Right. In addition to coaches and marketers and whether it's social media, everything. So there is not one role that you can think of that probably doesn't exist within our organization analytics. You know, there are people who have like a scientific perspective in what they're doing, part of the, part of the company. So I'll say one, looking at those job boards and understanding, even if you want to work for a team, we also have a lot of support organizations. So what it could be local agencies, it could be community partners that we may work with that partner with sports teams specifically everything from the signage that's being hung up in the building to all of the engineering and the technology, right. it's huge. And so people don't really think of sports in that broad perspective, but that's exactly what we need on a day-to-day -day basis in order to run. Right. Even from music and a DJ to dance team, like you name it, there's opportunities. But I'll say coming out the gate, a lot of people come in from a ticket sales perspective because there are a lot of opportunities and roles there. Okay. Some people aren't in sales, that's cool. You know, there are folks who are running our game days is stat crews. Like they're, you know, down low, just part-time staff, just there on a game-to-game -game basis, trying to help the game run. People come in as, you know, guest services. Like I just want to be in the arena, in the building. There are a lot of entry-level roles, but I'll say if there's an area of expertise that you have, it could be email marketing. We need email marketers. All of those things are critical. So if you're not focused on being in one city and one team, you know, between looking at leagues, looking at league partners, looking at different teams across the boy, minor league and major league. As soon as you get your foot in the door from that sports experience, it's also very incestuous. People go from team to team or sport to sport often. Um, so I think there's tremendous opportunity. It's just knowing that it's out there and being willing to go look for it. Not for sure. Um, just to switch scripts real quick. A question I like to ask a lot of artists and creatives about their work. Um, I like to kind of pick, you know, kind of pick little subjects about their work. From your book, what would you say is your favorite chapter and why? Man, I think my, my favorite chapter is probably one of the, the earlier chapters that I wrote just that really talks about my experience in, in Hurricane Andrew. Okay. Um, because it, growing up in Miami, Hurricane Andrew was kind of like life defining for me. And in writing that chapter, I had to like dig deep. I was looking at pictures and talking to family members and asking questions and I, I almost 
got to relive my life through writing that book in that chapter specifically, because I think it was a turning point for myself personally. Um, and I kind of grew up at age 12 after going through that experience. But I say that one for sure hit different for me uh, just in the creation of it. No, I definitely understand what you're saying. I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm in Dallas. And even although Hurricane Katrina didn't affect us uh, like directly, we, you know, uh, we took a lot of people from New Orleans came to Dallas. So just kind of like the aftermath of, you know, kind of helping them get situated in, you know, our city and just seeing everything that they went through from a firsthand experience and, you know, families being displaced and it, it was crazy. So, you know, I definitely understand. I wasn't as impactful because I know you were in Miami. So you no, we were in, we were in the eye. Like right. I was living in a trailer in front of my house for almost a year while they rebuilt it. But I remember folks with guns, you know, saying you loot, we shoot. And, waiting in line with FEMA trucks for food and waiting for ice and, you know, sleeping on other people's floors, just trying to get together. You know, there was no electricity forever. Yeah. It was, it was an experience, but like I said, it helped me grow up a lot and see life differently. Cause knowing that in the blink of an eye with one storm, everything that everything from my childhood disappeared, you know, in one, at one time. And that really just helped drive me. Cause now I'm like, none of this is permanent. Yeah, I ask, my, I ask myself that a lot of times when I'm when I'm looking to do something, I'm like, in the grand scheme of things, does this does this really even matter? Will this really matter five, 10, 20 years from now? You know, and that kind of helps me base my decisions of what I have going on because a lot of times, like experiences our family are the most important thing. You know, everything else is just kind of going through life. But experiences and family, those are things that's going to stay with you for as long as possible. Because once you're gone. You know, your family will tell your story and continue to throw that on. They will share your experiences. So that's kind of how I look at things. So I definitely um, understand what you're saying at that point. Yeah, I'm all about experiences over things. Nah, for sure, for sure. So um, one of my last questions, you know, after um, people getting to know you, following you on Instagram, reading your story, what is one thing you really want them to take from your book? Like if they could take one strong point, what would that point be from your book? it would be the power of guiding principles. And it's, you know, one of the things I talk about, you know, towards the end of my book. And I think it's really been transformative for me in my career, just in helping to redefine what success means. I think for a lot of people, they're chasing a title or a salary or, you know, a certain number of followers on the gram or whatever that might be for them. And for me, I really, you know, I had mentors who talked about, you know, what are your guiding principles? What are, what are your non-negotiables? What are those things that as you look at your life, you're like, I'm standing by this and this is what's most important for me. And so it took a lot of me living and having experiences to kind of land on what that was, but I call them my, my starting five or my top five. Yeah. Yeah, sure. one, yeah. yeah, my first one, you know, for me is the ability to be both creative and strategic in any job that I have, because I love the idea of creative and whether that's, you know, visually creative in art or just having a creative approach to business but then also wanting to provide some strategy in the way that I look at it as well. You know, the second one is I get bored really easily. So I always want to continue to learn and grow in whatever I'm doing. So if I can add new tools to my personal toolbox, that's crucial. And the way that I position it is I say, if I'm an agency, if I'm going to position myself like an agency, I want to have a new capability for my capabilities presentation. If I take this responsibility, because if I could do it in my sleep, I don't need to be there. Right. You know, the third one is, my mom was pretty bad with money growing up. Like she would like to go eat out every other day and go shop and which she was all about things over experiences. Right. And so for me, I've always been, you know, I want it, I don't want my bills. I don't want my lights getting cut off. So I want to be able to pay my bills on time or ahead. Right. And since I've had my daughter, I want to be able to invest 
in her future, some sort of generational wealth. I want to leave a legacy. Sure. So I don't need to be rolling around in Bentleys, but you know, making enough money to support my life and her future is important for me. For sure. The third is some sort of work-life harmony. I always say that life comes before work and I truly believe that. But sometimes there's not really balance. You know, sometimes you gotta work a lot. That's what All-Star was, you know, for a lot of our organization. But then after that, you know, you should have some downtime and balance it. But if I have to take my daughter to swim class at four o'clock on a Tuesday, I need to be able to go do that. Mm. So whatever I'm doing, as long as there's an understanding that there's some sort of harmony in life and the expectation isn't that I sit behind a desk from seven to seven just because somebody wants to see me sitting there, right. I know that I'll thrive in that environment. And then the last one is just authenticity. If I can bring my entire self to work or to whatever I'm doing all the time, which is I got a nose ring, I got locks, like right. I'm not cutting my hair, I can rock my Jordans and my sweats if I want to. Right. Um, it's important that I can be me 100% because I knew I'd do my best work then. And right. so those are my guiding principles. And I think for me in defining them, if anybody comes with an opportunity tomorrow, I can put them against these guiding principles. And if they match up for me, then I'm open to that. And I think it's really opened up my lens of what the future could look like. Cause I don't have a, I'm going to be a CMO of the Hawks forever. I have to be CEO of an organization. I can do anything sure. as long as it matches up with those starting five. And that to me, the power of defining guiding principles for yourself is the one thing that I hope anyone who reads this book can take away from it. That's amazing. Uh, a quick question. How would you say people should professionally implement those? Like, is it, is it like at the, at the, at an interview process? Is it once you get the job? Like when, when do you kind of tell these people, like, hey, these are the things I kind of stand for and I need to be able to be yeah. myself comfortably? I think the way in which you do it is different. I, I've obviously grown and I'm at a level in my career where I'm absolutely doing that at an interview. You know, <laughs> right. I'm starting out, I'm not like, trying to get my day one job like this is what I need I need you to do this. <laughs> like no <laughs> it could be in the way that you ask questions and say well how do you know what is your policy on you know hair or whatever because if you don't know if you don't ask you don't know and right. I think a lot of times people haven't thought about what those things are so they're not even asking the question exactly much less being able to demand it but for me now absolutely I will walk in the door and be like hey look this is me this right. is what I need can you provide these cool if not no worries because I can walk away from things. Sure. And that's a different kind of position to be in. But I, 100%, it, the definition of it is the hardest part. How you apply it is up to you, but I definitely think it allows you an opportunity to know what you're getting into because you're asking those questions up front. For sure, that makes sense. And last but not least, you shared who, you know, who, who's co-signed you early on. You shared your story, but I want to know who are who is maybe one person or two people that you co-sign um, could be women in sports, could be women in marketing that you really stand behind and like, hey, if you don't know who this is or what they're doing, you should definitely look out for who are that Man, person. There are so many. It's amazing people. <laughs> you know, DJ Poison Ivy with the math, you know, we, we connected over IG actually, and I'm such a big fan personally. So mad love, shouts out, love the stuff that she's doing out there. She's amazing. Um, I'd say Renee Montgomery, just being here in Atlanta as a woman and WNBA player now owner of a team, like what? Okay. Mind blown, like super proud of mm -hmm. her with co-sign that all day long. Mm -hmm. Um Pinky Cole, a slutty vegan, a friend of mine, but really I'm inspired by the work that she's done in Atlanta for the community, but also just in bringing veganism to a whole nother level, especially for people of color here in Atlanta through her different concepts, which I think are amazing. There's so many people. 
Sure. Um, but you know, to be the women on my team that you know I work with on a daily basis, like they are killing the game every day, and I'm I'm just so proud that we're able to work together to build what we are with the Atlanta Hawks. For sure, for sure, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. And to send us off, I would love if you could give our audience some type of motivation, whether it's a quote or something you feel like people should really um, embody, whether it's affirmation, just just some form of motivation to leave our audience with today. <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind is my, my personal mantra, I'm like, don't speak about it, be about it. Whatever it is you're doing, <laughs> that's it. It's a whole lot of people talking, especially in Atlanta. Everyone's talking, but just don't talk. Like, just do the yeah. work. Nah, um, but amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> it's the truth. But at the end, you know, it's the advice I give my daughter every day and what my mom gave me. It sounds like your mom gave you. It's just always do your best. Like, you know, when you're half-assing it, you know, when you're not giving it 100, but when you actually go in and give it your all, the world can open up for you. That's amazing. Be your best. Give your all. No, don't, don't speak about it. Be about it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Melissa, thank you so much for your time. You, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Um, speaking of connections, uh, there's, uh, I was had a conversation with the agency out here and they were asking me about, you know, women in sports. Um, and I definitely gave them your information, uh, your, your Instagram. So if you do have free time, I'd love to connect you with them. They're, they're doing amazing panels and conversations about women in sports. And I definitely, uh, think you're a leader in that. Love your conversation, love the content you put out from your previous content. So I'll definitely make that connection. If that's something you oh, man, I appreciate that. Thank you. Sure. You have an amazing rest of your day and I look forward to following your story and your journey. So I appreciate you. Yeah, man. Let me know whenever, whatever you need. I'm here. I'm happy to help promote support, you know, whatever. I got sure, you. Thanks for being flexible. Oh, no, time. no problem. I had to make this happen. So I appreciate your time so much. All right, well, take care. Have a good one. All right, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, guys, what's good? Thanks for supporting Coastline Magazine by watching this video. If you really enjoyed this content, please subscribe, like, comment, and share.